Hi, my name is Steve Taylor. Welcome to the ShareEd podcast, created by Robinhood Multi-Academy Trust. In today's podcast, we're going to be focusing on vision, specifically how you develop a vision and how you enact a vision. And we're really lucky to have Dame Alison Peacock with us of the Chartered College of Teaching. Now, for those of you who don't know Alison, she's got a rich background in education. She's a columnist for the Times Educational Supplement. She's a trustee at Teach First. And in her last headship, she took a school from special measures to outstanding in a two and a half year period. In fact, Alison has done many great things in education and we're really proud to have her with us today. The first thing I think really, really to talk about is the, the, the most obvious from my point of view, which is you took a school from special measures to outstanding in two and a half years, which by anyone's feet is fairly miraculous and, and, and a hell of an achievement. I mean, I would say that most people would be happy to get a school to outstanding in their career at some point. But when you factor in taking it from special measures to outstanding and then you factor in the really short time frame, can you just tell us a little bit about that and how you came to make that happen? Yes, of course. So the first thing to say is uh, I and everybody on the team worked incredibly hard. So it wasn't something that just happened. But the, uh, the whole rationale for this was I went to visit the school. I saw that it was a school that was depressed. So it was depressed in, the, in terms of the environment looked tired. The children looked quite bored. Um, the teachers were exhausted. And no school deserves to look like that. And they'd been through a, a very long time, over three years of trying to move beyond the judgment of special measures. Okay. So when I went in as a new head teacher, it was kind of last chance saloon, really. <laughs> in fact, I, you know, I think when they appointed me, um, I, I realised it was my first headship. In fact, it turned out to be my only headship. But I realised pretty soon on in the recruitment process that either the school was going to uh, improve or it was going to shut. So there was a huge kind of imperative around doing something different. And that gives you a mandate, if you like, as a new head teacher. So I, had, I didn't have the mantle of blame coming in, that it was my fault that it had gone into, into a category. I was able to come in with fresh ideas and people had nothing to lose, if you like, by following the kind of direction that I took. And that's is very helpful when it comes to trying to move a school. Because if you're in a school that is labelled and it's a disappointing label, it's incredibly hard to motivate everybody to say, well, we'll do something different or we'll just try harder. Because people always try hard in, in schools. And the teachers at this school where I joined it had all been trying their best, but they didn't, they didn't have the leadership, they didn't have the direction that they needed. And yeah. so coming in as a fresh kind of... Um, new bouncy head teacher never having been a head teacher before and saying there are lots of things that we can do and having having a kind of um a really strong vision for what needed to take place in the school meant that I was well placed to help it move from where it had been to where it subsequently became an outstanding school so and I've dined out on it ever since quite frankly I mean you wouldn't be speaking to me had that hadn't happened (laughs) Oh, I'm sure I would, but I mean, um, it's a massive catalyst, isn't it? Because it gives you an enormous amount of credibility because you've yeah. 
you walk the path from a school that's been in, in, in a really difficult place. How, in terms of the vision, so you went and looked around the school, you'd not, um, you know, you, you'd not been a head teacher before. You, I'll take it, that takes a lot of guts to go, your first headship to go to special measures. Either a lot of guts or, or crazy or a bit of both. I don't know. <laughs> both probably. Yeah. <laughs> and how long before you developed that vision for that school? Because, of course, you've got to get in and see it and understand it. And So, well, so I I didn't have the luxury of that, really. I went for the interview and, um, as quite typically is the case in, in headship interviews, they asked me, the governors and the guy from the local authority, who was leading, um, asked me what my my uh, plans for the school would be um, within the next three years. Yeah. And so I had to give them a presentation on what my vision for the school would be when I went for the interview. And I said that the school would be a happy learning community where we would have high standards, both academically, but also more broadly, where we would work in partnership with the community, where we would be inclusive. Um, and that vision was the one that I then put on my wall. So I got a kind of PowerPoint slide with the, with the name of the school in the middle and all around the edge, I sort of said all these things that we were going to achieve. I said we would have a broad and balanced curriculum. Um, and I put that on the wall in my office and I used that slide with the parents in the first week of my appointment as head teacher and said, this is where we want the school to be. They weren't really interested, interestingly. They weren't, um, that wasn't what was motivating the parents. The parents who came to those meetings in that first week wanted to have a look at who this new head teacher was. Yeah. Was she, you know, was she going to be up to scratch? Um, and then the questions they asked me were nothing to do with this grand vision of high standards and, you know, joyful learning. It was all about well, what are you going to do about the Christmas play next year? Because this year it was cancelled because, you know, they said they hadn't got time because they were in special measures. Um, and things about the uniform and um, are you going to sort out bullying? They weren't interested in my grand plans, quite frankly. But uh, so, just to say to you, oh, sorry, just to say, but I did do this presentation and on the first day that I did it to all these parents in the hall in the afternoon, at the end of it, as everybody was going out of the hall, there was uh, a grandma who was sitting in the front row and she'd been sitting in the front row, row all the way through my presentation. And as I got off the stage and sort of came down, she came up to me and she took hold of my arm and she said to me, you're going to do it, love. You're going to do it. And that sense of being believed in, and I think we all need that at whatever stage we're in in our career. Yeah. Having yeah. someone who says, you can do this. Yeah. And then I thought, oh, well, I better, I better had now. <laughs> I better make sure it works. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> because I suppose, you know, what we're touching upon there, we, we, what you've said is there's, there's that vulnerability, isn't there, when you step into anything new and you're looking ahead to, particularly when you're, when you're leading on something, if, it's, if you've not done it before, that you are laying yourself bare, aren't you? Oh, completely. And I think my sort of leadership style uh, is to be completely honest with people, pretty much. Yeah. You know, I, you know, what you see is what you get. I have, I'd have no reason to hide things. And I remember when I studied, when I was doing my MPQH back in the day, and they said to me, um, it's a very lonely job being a head teacher. And I remember thinking, well, maybe I don't want this job then because I don't want to be all by myself. You know, I always like to work in a team. I like to work with people. 
But I can honestly say to you, um, Steve, that I, I never really had a lonely day as being a head teacher. I didn't. I had people around me. I had a brilliant team. And there were always people that I could talk to. And I'm not suggesting that you go and talk about confidential issues like safeguarding. Of course, you would never do that. But there's something about, uh, you know, a problem shared is a problem halved. And if you if you feel as though you've got to have everything on your shoulders and you have to be the hero and you have to sort everything out, chances are sooner or later you're going to fall over because that's an impossible burden. And at the moment, uh, with everything we've been going through with COVID, it would be absolutely ridiculous to think that any one individual would have the answers to everything because it's too difficult and there's so many, there's so many talented people out there aren't there on on whatever team that you are there's people can contribute so much can't they you well can- if you if you encourage them to do so and i think this is a this is again it's part of that whole vision of leadership my sense of being a leader is about how do you enable others how do you grow others around you yeah. so that when you're working together, you can support each other, but also you're kind of enabling them to fly so that sooner or later they're going to go and they're going to achieve their own success as a leader beyond your organisation. That should be a mark of your success as well. Yeah. And I think those of us that um, perhaps are a bit more worried about that and, and hold things back and feel they shouldn't do that miss a trick because the more you trust people, the more they trust you and the more you work with people the more they want to help each other and everything becomes um becomes easier it still means you go through difficult times but when you go through difficult times you do it as a team you know we had situations such as bereavements in school which are horrendous things to have to go through you know standing there as, as the head teacher of the school and having to talk to the whole community about someone that we all loved passing that's a terrible thing to have to do but I didn't have to do it on my own I didn't feel as if I was on my own I felt as if everybody in the room was with me and we were all kind of going through something together but we would help each other and I think that kind of leadership is a much more enabling form of leadership than the one that says um you all need to do as you're told and I'm going to come and check up on you I've never been that kind of leader no 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 I agree an enabling version of uh, of leadership so Looking ahead to the focus for this podcast um, with you is is vision. Now, I've got a particular um, viewpoint on vision because when I'm talking with, well, when I was setting out in my career, but also talking with up and coming people in their careers, I think vision is often seen. Some people can articulate a vision really well, and, and they and they know what it means, and they and they know what it stands for, and they're clear. Other people see it as a bit of an enigma and don't understand what the term vision means or what they stand for in education. I just, I'd be really interested to hear your thoughts on this because it, this is a transferable skill. I think that if you're a subject leader, you need to have a vision for your subject. You know, if you're a class teacher, you need to have a vision for where you're going to take your class and how you're going to get your class to the, the right place um, by the end of the school year. And if you're a head teacher, that's magnified ver- further. But it, it's something that, a lot of people find tricky. What are your thoughts on that? <laughs> so I think it's essential. It's so much more than setting yourself targets, though. This is about, well, if I, I can only really talk from my own personal experience because I only know me, really. Yeah. Um, but there's a restlessness within me that constantly says, what else can we do? What else can we achieve? So even when I first 
the first job I ever had before I even uh, went to university was to work um, on Saturdays in Woolworths, if you remember Woolworths. I do remember Woolworths, yeah. (laughs) And when I worked for Woolworths, um, in the evening I would go and meet with my boyfriend, now husband, John, and I would drive him around the twist by telling him all the things that Woolworths should be doing to make things better, that they could be doing to make things more profitable and how things could be um, uh, more efficient and so on. So, So even in a job like that, I kind of took the role really uh, seriously in terms of what can I do to try and make things better. Now, that could be seen to be quite a ridiculous kind of example, except that when I became a teacher, it was it was exactly the same. I was constantly thinking, what else can I be doing? How can I be the best teacher I can be? How can I work more effectively with parents? What can I do to communicate the learning that these youngsters have just achieved? Who can I tell about this? Because what they've done is amazing. And if I tell other people, then they'll be more motivated. So that translated into things like I was the first teacher in the first school I went to was a, a quite a rundown, comprehensive 11 to 16 at the time. And I put a display of the children's work, year sevens, put their, a display of their work up in the corridor. And as I was putting, this is in the first few weeks of me being a teacher. And as I was putting this display up, um, the kind of hard-bitten head of faculty, science faculty, came past me and he said to me, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm, you know, I'm, just, I'm just displaying the year sevens work because, you know, they've worked really hard. And he was like, nah, that'll be pulled down by the morning, meaning no one's going to appreciate this. They're just going to rush, kids are just going to rush past it in the corridor and abuse it. And, and that, that display remained completely intact because it's to do with, the youngsters could see, here's someone who's made an effort and done something and they're celebrating others' work. And so it was respected. Now that's a tiny example, but it's an example of coming in as a new teacher into a school that was a really tough place to work. It was really tough. And you could see why people became cynical and downbeaten, probably. But as a new teacher, I was kind of like, well, this is what we could do, couldn't we? And when I I left at the end of the year, because I was moving to get married, I was moving up to Leicestershire. And when, when I was about to leave, people were like, what, you're, you're, you're leaving? I mean, no one ever leaves here. It was like it was a kind of life sentence that you stayed at this school forever. And the, the students, the, 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 you know, they, they were sort of saying to me, we're really sorry that you're going, miss. Yeah. Um, and I remember thinking, well, you've given me a really tough time in this year. So this is a shock to me that you're surprised I'm going. I think you're sad that I'm going. But that's what it's like when you're a teacher, isn't it? It's, yeah. it's constantly about what else can you give? Uh, that helps everybody believe in the next step. And I think essentially having that vision, whether you are, as you say, whether you're a teacher, whether you're a head of department, whether you're a subject lead, phase leader, wherever you are in the job, having a kind of restless ambition on behalf of everybody else that you help them to realise. So it's their success, but you know that you've done that bit that's enabled them to achieve that success. That's just magic, I think. That's lovely. Well, I think too, I think they're both... Two great examples. I think the Woolworths one, that says to us about you as a person, doesn't it? Which is that you've got high expectations and that, that, that inner drive. So I think, I think that's really useful. There are some people that, that, that end up going into leadership and pushing on with their careers that what you've also talked about is an inner confidence, really. Because you might have only been saying it to, to John, who turns out to be your husband. But in going back and in essentially what you're doing is you're critiquing how Woolworths is operating, 
which means that you've got a confidence in your own ability to look at Woolworths and say, I see where they are missing a trick. Mm. And if I was doing that, maybe I would do it better. So you've got the, you've got an innate ability there to start evaluating and then to looking at where an improvement can come. And that's a level of confidence. And I, I think that as your, as careers grow, if you do that well and you do that right, you develop an internal steeliness that says you do know what you're talking about. Mm. So when challenged or when you hit the dark times, there's a spine that courses through you that says, yeah, I do know I, I have got credibility in, in what I'm doing. What about if we've got someone who is new to certain roles? They don't have that inner confidence just yet. You know, developing a vision for someone like that, who's a little bit more tentative, it's probably a little bit harder, isn't it? Yeah, it's really interesting that you say that. Um, I think you're right. I think it's also something about where do you get that confidence from? Yes. So um, one of the things that we're really very keen to do at the Chartered College is to help teachers grow their careers. Yes. So that when you get people, um, even in the earliest days, you know, we've, we've created the early career hub to support teachers who are early on in their, um, in their teaching career, but then the notion of thinking, well, can I study to become a chartered teacher? Can I go beyond my intuition to find out more about um, the research, the sort of science of what it means to be a great teacher? That's, in my view, how you start to build that confidence, that you build confidence because you are either mentored by people around you who uh, give you great advice or you are able to read things or listen to things that help you grow your ideas. I think teaching should be seen much more as an intellectual profession than perhaps it is always seen as being, because that notion of building vision, um, it's not that you, uh, you know, you're born with it and that's the vision that you've got and, and nothing uh, detracts from it. It's more about a kind of set of purposes that you believe in and a set of values that you really believe in. And, and if you have the job, a job where you can enact those values what a brilliant job that is and I think very often teaching is is one of the best jobs um, that people can pursue because there's so much freedom that you you still have within your classroom within the team that you work with and if if that freedom aligns with your set of personal values and it means that you're able to do things that keep moving that forward that's incredibly fulfilling that's an incredibly worthwhile career to have and if you don't have that being able to be supported in your thinking through professional learning, through, as I say, working with other colleagues, maybe watching people teach, listening to them talk about their vision. All of this helps you to build your own sense of purpose yeah. so that ultimately, you know, you, you would hope that uh, when we have that, when we think about our leadership of our schools across the, the country, the vast majority of our school leaders are doing things that they think are the right things to do. And when we have a clash with that, when people are asked to do something they don't really believe in, that's when I think things get really difficult. So um, one of the areas that we're looking at at the moment in the Chartered College is working to think about ethics. What, is it, what does it mean to be a teacher? What, what are the kind of ethical standards of being a teacher and being a leader? And how might that help the profession when we're when we're thinking about those roles and how to develop those roles so it's very complex but it's 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 also really important um because if you if you work for somebody and i have experienced this if you work for somebody 
who vacillates in their vision, who one day thinks one thing and then the next day seems to think something else. That is incredibly hard to work with somebody like that because you can never please them because they don't quite quite know what they want. That's very difficult. Yeah, I can so I, I can totally imagine that. I'm just going to pick up on um, something that you said around you know um, holding true to your values and things. I think that also with with vision. I mean, this is general. I'm generalizing, so it doesn't mean that I'm right for every case. But when I speak to people who, who find it difficult to articulate a vision, they're not quite sure about how they how they do that. I it's often that I'm speaking to someone who might not have been in a position where they've had their back to the wall, where they have been um, threatened in their, in, in their career or worked in a school that tests out something that they believe in and does the opposite. When I, in my third year of teaching, I moved to Coventry from Greater Manchester, from an outstanding school to a school that was satisfactory at the time. And everything that I believed about how children should be um, engaged and pushed and challenged in education and my whole philosophy, which I had developed in me in, in the outstanding school. When I got to the, this satisfactory school, it was completely the opposite. I mean, we had teachers turning up to the school sometimes just after the children were lining up on the playground. And we had some teachers, a year six teacher that was going at four o'clock uh, each day, you know, and actually for me to understand what I had in, my, in terms of my values in education and start to start to develop a vision, I needed to know what I definitely didn't believe. Mm. And having and seeing a school that didn't value children in the same way as I did, you know, I hated that. And I considered leaving education at the time because I was desperately unhappy. Thank God I stuck it out, went to another school. And then when I look back, actually, all of the career development I've had, that was a defining moment because without that, I'm probably not so concrete on where my vision and education should be going. You know, I've got something really to push against and a, and a marker. So uh, have you come across something like that before? You know, the value of people having their being in, in a difficult position. I think, I think you, when you're, when you're in a difficult situation, the deciding what to do next, if you don't have clear vision of what you stand for and what you are trying to achieve it's much easier to be to be pushed around to be to vacillate to not be quite certain which way you should you should uh, move forward and if I think about there were many times in my period of time I was 14 years I was a, I was a head of that school and I had that vision with the school's name in the middle on the wall in my office all of that time and there were occasions when it was tempting to do something that was uh, an easier route that would have been a quicker way to do something, but that would have gone against what that vision would be. So if you say that you are going to value everybody and you are going to, and that you really value listening and um, a kind of sense of involving everybody in decision-making, that means everybody. It doesn't just mean the convenient majority. And so sometimes maybe there would be a particularly loud voice either on the staff or amongst the parent body or even amongst the student body, actually, who would be demanding something or asking for something that went against what were the kind of core purposes of the school. And it would have been easier sometimes to just sort of give in. Yeah. Um, and within those loud voices, I also think sometimes the voices of those who 
pronounced from afar. So, you know, the, the, the voice of the perceived voice of the Ofsted inspector or whatever it might be. You know, if you take into account someone else's views and they go against your own and you think, yes, but it would be easier and quicker to just do this, then ultimately um, it's kind of self-defeating. So the best way around all of this, I came to describe it as, as kind of how do you find a way through? How do you find a way through to achieve what you need to achieve for your vision, but that nevertheless enables that path to be easier and smoother and sometimes so an example would be um in our last full inspection that we that we had at the school where I was head teacher at the time um Michael Wilshaw was the chief inspector and he was very clear that every teacher should be monitored within an inch of their life you know that we needed to have records of lesson observations and so on and so forth and in our school at the time, we were we, we didn't believe in that kind of way of working, but we were looking at lesson study as a means of being able to um, work in triads to understand what were things that were going on within classrooms that we could improve still further. And it was a collaborative exercise. Um, so it wasn't a kind of traditional lesson observation at all where someone would come in and make a judgment. Anyway, we've got this process in place and it would involve us looking really carefully, doing a series of observations and then writing up what we'd seen. And when I got the call to say they were going to come and visit again to do a full inspection, I just changed the title on the folder, which had got the lesson study, to monitoring, you know? Yeah. So I'd kind of got a means to say, and here's our, here's our example of monitoring. But we'd never called it monitoring. We'd never delivered it in the way that was all about that kind of um, Will Shaw approach that he clearly thought was the right way to go. So... So the vision didn't waver, but the means to get to where we needed to get to, yeah. it's, it's that clarity of purpose that, it, that is, is really um, fundamental, I think. And knowing why you're doing what you're doing, because if you lose your why, which is essentially what you're talking about with yeah, your vision, yeah, totally. if you lose your why, then you are, you are constantly, um, as I say, subject to being pushed one way or the other and just doing what someone else thinks is the right thing to do. And almost always, that isn't going to be good enough. Yeah. Because it's not going to satisfy you or anybody else, it seems to me. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I really like that example. <laughs> and part of, my secrets today, I'll tell you. <laughs> part of being, being a successful leader in whatever field is known as well when you need to um, flex and you need to operate a little bit in, in, in the grade. So to bend things to make it work for what you're doing isn't it well, and i think that's a that, that's a great example i also think that what you've described there is uh through through coronavirus you know where things have been very stressful for for everyone in the country and, and particularly in schools and, and leadership we've started bringing in um with our leaders is you know really when you're making a decision you you've just got to ask yourself two key questions and if you can answer them go with the decision First one, are we putting children at the center of the decision? That's the first and most important one. Can you tick it off? The second one is, can you look yourself in the mirror and know that with the information you were given at the time, that you hold true to what you believe? If you can tick off those two things, make the decision. If you can't tick off both things, delay or don't make the decision and review. And when you actually strip it back, a lot of vision and pushing forwards to the future is it's intrinsically linked to, to values, but it's also linked to integrity, isn't it? 
I think I think you're absolutely right. I mean, when when it came to thinking about moving beyond the school, one of the things I've been doing is working with the DfE around assessment about removing national curriculum levels, thinking about alternatives to labelling children. Yeah. And I was part of a commission. I was part of all that kind of formal work with the DfE. And then it was clear that the DfE were only going to take that so far. They weren't going to be able to, they weren't going to run any kind of professional training for teachers. And people were clearly kind of finding it incredibly hard to know what to do next in terms of assessment once levels had gone. It was kind of like, well, I can't move. I don't know what to do now if I can't label it with a 2B. I just don't know how to do it. And so together with some colleagues, um, I set up a whole series of conferences called Hashtag Learning First. And these were free conferences across the country over a period of about 15 months, run on Saturdays in universities. Anybody could come and and it was for teachers to showcase their practice around assessment that was putting children first and putting learning first. And that was what led me to going to the Chartered College, because if you just said to me when I was the head teacher kind of a year before that, if you'd said to me, Alison, what you're going to do in the future is you're going to go and lead this new professional body that nobody's ever heard of before. Uh, you're going to start it from scratch. And not only that, people are going to have to pay to join, um, even though they, <laughs> they've got a kind of a memory of the GCC and what was that? And they didn't like it. Um, you're going to go and do that. And you're going to do that with the vision of, what could our profession achieve if we were all to work together? I would have said to you, you were mad. But, you know, at the heart of this is a really strong vision for the future of our profession. And this is about saying, if as teachers we commit to developing our professionalism so much more, if we commit to constantly seeking to refine our practice, to share what's working well with our colleagues in a collegiate manner, to engage in study that helps the actual practice in our classrooms, in our context. If we can do that and we can articulate that collectively as a body, we are far stronger in terms of helping create good education policy, enable the wider society to see that teachers are not just people who just turn up and um, do as you were saying, turn up just, just around when the children do and leave just when they do and have great long holidays. The teachers are professionals who constantly grow their skill. That, that is the way that we start to really change the status of what it means to be a teacher. That's the way that we enable people to come into the profession and feel incredibly proud and then to stay within the profession or to pause their career, go somewhere else, but then come back with new skills and new expertise or new experiences having travelled and commit to education because that's our future. And it strikes me that vision is one that we could all subscribe to because that's about making our working lives so much better. But it's also about a really strong core purpose, which is about the future of our children. Yeah, and about uniting. Completely. And also it's not about saying one way's right either. I mean, I think that's the other thing. Before I joined this job at the Chartered College, I tended to just think that some things were just obvious, like feeding children. I thought that was just something that you would do, <laughs> that you would do, that if there was a child that came into school and they were hungry, you would somehow find them enough food that they could have some breakfast because you know that they couldn't learn. And then when I started this job, I realised that actually um, there are people that would debate about anything in relation to education. Uh, and there were people who work as teachers who look at the job of being a teacher and say, no, no, 
social workers need to do this or counsellors need to do that or you know you just need to focus on your job as being a teacher and my experience is that actually there's a huge range of experiences out there teachers teaching a huge variety of schools in the way that you've already described Steve and in some schools you can focus just on teaching your subject and really focus on what you're doing and in other schools if you just did that and didn't worry about the fact that the child had come to school having experienced a traumatic experience that morning and hadn't had anything to eat for the last 24 hours, it would be pretty difficult to teach them. Yes. So being able to listen and understand that the profession is diverse and has a range of roles that it carries out, but that whatever we're doing, we can always improve upon that. And that we should have that kind of inner drive that I described I mean, we saw what happened to Woolworths, so clearly that, that didn't work out terribly well. But, you know, if only you'd have gone on to run Woolworths. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> I'm not saying that at all, but I, I think what I am saying is that, uh, you know, as a profession, sometimes we have allowed ourselves to be um, told what to do too much. You know, we've lost yes. our kind of inner sense of doing what's right which you described perfectly in response to covid now i think what we've seen over the last number of months is a relentless brilliant focus an exhausting focus mind you from our school leaders on doing what's right for our children yeah and that is it's not sustainable but it's been incredibly impressive you know our school leaders and our teachers of course and everyone who works in schools but our school leaders particularly have had to make some really difficult decisions haven't they yeah and look themselves in the mirror quite right yeah, and, and it, it makes you proud, doesn't it? Because absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I, I I kind of think with this with the whole COVID thing is you can see it as a very stressful time. It is a very stressful time, undoubtedly. But I also see it as uh, an honour of a generation that we got to lead at a time that the country needed us absolutely. and to step up and be counted. I mean, some of the things that I've seen happen during coronavirus. Um, that trusts have led on, leaders have led on, school leaders, whoever it may be, and also some of the stuff we've done at Robin and Matt. Sometimes I feel so proud, you know, it, it makes me cry because you just look at those, um, how people have stepped forward at a time yeah. of need. That's why people go into education to stand up. Exactly. exactly. And it is that sense of, of making a difference. I think it's a very unusual teacher that starts their teaching career and stays the course who hasn't been driven by a core purpose such as that, that really making a difference, meaning that they can, they can uh, change people's lives, essentially. Um, that's what you do as a great teacher. And, and often you don't even see it. Often you don't see the impact of things that you do because they may feel really small to you. It might just be one thing you do in a whole range of things across a day. But actually, um, when you get to my age, you start meeting people who you taught years ago and they sort of say, would you remember this? Thinking, mm, just about. And it's been really transformative yeah. in many cases. So um, it's a lot of privilege. It's a real privilege to be a teacher, I think. It is. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't agree more with you. So taking all that back and everything that, 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 that's been said, there's a couple of summary points I wanted to pick up on. One, you talked about, you know, when you're in, when you were um, in charge of the Roxham School, then going and doing these um these, these workshops across the country. And I think that's a brilliant example of if you believe in something strongly enough and if you then enact that and take a risk so you see driving a wider national curriculum, uh, national agenda, sorry, as a bigger thing, you do that by the right values. If you get it right, you're going to make a change. But also, clearly, like for you, um, 
it's going to open doors for you because you're being seen to be lead, leading with integrity, plus you're thinking outside of the box. So that's, you know, that that's a really great thing. What about um, if we're saying to people then, they're, they're looking to, to develop their vision. If we go for two or three key principles um, for them to, to help them, to guide them, what would you say? Well, I think trust is really important. So I think being able to see lead and to engender trust around you is fundamental because if you can't do that then no one's going to follow you so i think creating a climate of trust trusting others and and enabling them to, to trust you it's a reciprocal process i think that's that's fundamental i think there's something about that notion of taking people with you so there's something about the importance of everybody that it's not good enough just to take a few with you on a happy band that you disappear off into the hills and nobody follows you. It needs to be about working with the community. And that's difficult because it's always hard to take into account the views of, the, of, of many people. But when you're a school leader, when you're a teacher even, actually, you know, it's really important that you show that you, that you care, that you are listening, that you value other people's opinions on things. And sometimes you have to take a decision which might not please everybody, but if people can understand why you've done that, yeah. because you've listened and you've shown that you're available and, you know, essentially you, that you're behaving in a democratic way, then I think that stands you in good stead. So I think it's about trust. I think it's about taking everybody with you. And there's also something that's about agency, which is about people feeling that they have the opportunity to come and talk to you, to tell you what they think, that you're available, that you will listen to them, that you talk and you refine your ideas so it's not that you've got a sort of blueprint and it's fixed if anything the blueprint is, is around principles the actions that you take to achieve those principles are hugely variable and can be influenced by the community that you're working with the people that you're working with at the time but the thing that stays constant is if I believe that education should be a joyful experience where everybody can feel challenged and excited and enabled then that's going to stay constant regardless. And that's going to stay constant whether I'm talking about children or adults. Yeah. So that, that vision for me translates to what I'm doing now at the Chartered College. I'm, I haven't got a class of children anymore. But when COVID struck, the school leader in me said, well, what can I do? How can I help? And, and so within our team at the Chartered College, we very rapidly responded by trying to provide as many resources as that we could that were freely available in the same way that you did in your trust, you know, Robin Hood trust, you know, it was that kind of instinct of what can I do to help? Yeah. And then what can I keep on doing that listens to what the issues are that can help further? Yeah. And how can I encourage people? You know, David Carter, so David Carter is, is a great example of someone with strong vision. Yeah. I was looking at his book the other day and he talks about the importance of being visible, the importance of walking the corridors and stopping and talking yeah. to people and greeting people and listening to them. And it doesn't matter whether they work in the kitchen, whether they're providing the, doing the cleaning or whether you're deputy head. It's not about status. It's about humanity. Yeah. That's what matters. Absolutely. And, and, the, and I agree with all that. I think David Carter says as well, doesn't he? Um, the standard you walk past is the standard you accept as well, you know, which is also yeah. another yeah. A, a, another key thing. I would also encourage people to, you said, you know, about your principles. Uh, mm. I think a really useful exercise, you know, 
there's quite a lot of work gone into encouraging people to journal their thoughts down and to get to get ideas down on paper. You know, for anyone who's really looking at what do they stand for in education, you know, mm. I personally would encourage people to to jot down as many things as you truly believe that you stand mm. for and your principles, and then also start to jot down how where do you really want to see education going? You know, not now in your dream education scenario, what does it look like? And somewhere lying between those, you, you've got what you stand for and maybe where you're going to go. So Absolutely. I think it's, I mean, it's been great to speak to you. Could you mind if we ask you a, a few questions just to, um, just to sort of um, bring it to a conclusion? Okay. Because part of um, this series is also around um, understanding a little bit of vulnerability in, in people that, that we interview that no career and no path is ever um, straightforward. So firstly, can you tell us who's been the biggest influence, had the biggest influence on your career? can be within education, outside of education, but when you think back now, who left their mark on you? So so I think the person who's had the biggest influence um, was a lecturer at university, Mary Jane Drummond. Some of your uh, listeners may know Mary Jane. She um, she is an early years educator, academic, fiercely um, speaks up for children. And when I was doing my master's degree, she was one of my tutors. And then subsequently, she worked with me on the Learning Without Limits books that we wrote. Um, fierce intellect, always driven by what was right for the children. And I found actually one of the reasons that our school improved so dramatically when I was head teacher was I was more worried about doing the right thing by Mary Jane than I was about any Ofsted inspector. She was far more scary. Um, And so it meant that our kind of um, things we were doing in the school were above the expectations of Ofsted. They weren't driven by Ofsted. They were above them because it was all about putting things in place that the children would love. So she's probably the biggest influence I think um, over a number of years. <laughs> Sounds like a fantastic woman. Um, yeah. What what about um, a setback that you that you've had to overcome in your career where it didn't go according to plan? Well so um, in that first year when I became a head teacher when you're in special measures, um, you have an HMI who is assigned to the school. And this particular HMI had been assigned to the school for the past three years. And I arrived and he did the first um, monitoring visit and then he did a second one. And um, after he'd left, after the second visit, I put in a newsletter to the parents um, that they were going to return again the following term and that there was every hope that the school would be removed from special measures because that's what he told me. And I put it in the newsletter on this particular day because I thought this would encourage the community, you know, we're on a positive path, things are going really, really well. Anyway, when they arrived, he arrived with another HMI to inspect the school with a view to whether or not it could come out of special measures. Um, You have to prepare a folder, and I've got a folder of all the resources and things, and within the folder there was this newsletter And it had never even occurred to me. Anyway, he came and found me on the first morning of this inspection and said to me, how dare you, how dare you write out to your parents to say that we would be coming back to remove this school from special measures. Who are you to to prejudge the outcome of this this inspection? And I was absolutely 
shredded by this. I mean, to the point where I just felt incredibly shaky, like literally trembling all day long. And then it was a two-day inspection. I didn't sleep all that night. I couldn't eat. I, you know, um, and the, uh, anyway, as it came to it, the following day um, in the afternoon of the second day, he then had to read out a particular pronouncement, which takes you off special measures. But as he was doing this, I was still kind of, I, I, anyway, because I, I just thought I'd blown it. I just thought I'd really jeopardised the whole thing. Yeah. Um, and when he left, we should have all been celebrating and I just burst into tears. I was just absolutely devastated because I just felt, well, I felt bullied but also I, I, I was really kind of worried that I just, in my, in my enthusiasm to kind of encourage everybody that I could have just caused this, this, this situation. And actually telling you now, it makes me kind of go all, ugh, just sort of, sort of sharing it. Um, I think, however, that he probably realised he'd taken things a bit too far because the following day, which was a Friday as I remember it, um, the phone rang and it was that HMI and he phoned up to check that I was all right. Um, and, uh, you know, so there was a bit of humanity there after all, but it was a very traumatic experience and it was, it did make me realise, you know, that, um, you know, there are greater forces at work sometimes and you, and humility is really important. And it wasn't, I wasn't, it was just, I was so, I was just so hopeful. I was just full of hope. <laughs> so yeah yeah thank you for bringing that trauma back to my mind <laughs> i haven't thought about that for years so just uh, anyway you got through it didn't you and 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 if that's the biggest thing that people can throw at you is that you're providing hope to a community then um when you put it like that but i think he probably thought i was being arrogant and um overstating the position but <laughs> never mind <laughs> well can i say it's been an absolute pleasure to um to chat with you and 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 to talk through and and to hear about your view on vision and also thank you for everything that you've done for the charter college of teaching because um you know over over this period of covid on twitter and things i think that you personally have been relentless in sharing um, what people are doing and doing that in a really altruistic way sometimes I think we see organizations set up that part of part of their driver is to make sure that the name of their organization is out there which is fine um, I never get that from you guys I never get that from you when you're when you're on Twitter you are doing it in, in an altruistic way and I think that that itself is a great mark for um, the direction that the Charter College is going well, in. Thank you. And it is because I care, you know, I, I, and also because I just feel so proud of what everybody's doing at the moment. Um, it's just amazing. So, yeah, well done, everybody. Thanks for taking the time to listen to the podcast today. And we hope that you got a lot out of the conversation with Dame Alison Peacock on Vision. As always, this is a Robin Hood Multi-Academy Trust production. You can message us on Twitter via at Robin Hood Trust, and you can also use the hashtag ShareEd. Until next time, catch you later.